Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 134. How do you build a REST API using the Flask web framework? How can you quickly add endpoints while automatically generating documentation? This week on the show, RealPython author Philip Axeni is here to discuss his tutorial series, Python REST APIs with Flask, Connection, and SQL Alchemy. Christopher Trudeau is also here with another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. Philip talks about updating an original set of tutorials to use current libraries and best practices. The series takes you through building the base Flask project, defining endpoints, creating documentation, adding a persistent database, and implementing models with SQL Alchemy. Christopher shares an article about contributing to an existing internal or open source project by properly preparing pull requests. The article is titled 10 Tasty Ingredients for a Delicious Pull Request. We share several other articles and projects from the Python community, including more suspicious PyPI packages using new tactics, method chaining in pandas, tools to find syntax errors without stopping, a library for searching text in videos using OCR, visualizing CPython's specializing adaptive interpreter, and a library for building CLI applications based on type hints. This episode is sponsored by InfluxDB. InfluxDB time series platform is built to handle the massive volumes of time series data produced by sensors, apps, and systems. Are you building real-time applications? Check it out at influxdata.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher. Welcome back. Hey there. So we have a guest this week, a special guest from the Real Python team. I want to welcome Philip Axeni to our show. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Hey, Philip. Yeah, it's awesome to hear your voice here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super excited to be finally in this podcast and not on the other side. Yeah. Maybe you could give us a little background. Um, we've mentioned several of your articles over the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight months. But how long have you been with Real Python now? Uh, it should be like... Almost a year. I think I started full-time in December 2021. Wow. So yeah, it's it's anniversary time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you can mention a little bit about your background that I thought was fascinating. You had worked kind of in printing, but also kind of in fonts. Is that right? Uh, yeah, fonts, yes. With printing, not so much. So I studied at a art school where there was actually like a, a big printing background or history. But I was glad to to move to digital stuff uh, as fast as possible <laughs> and uh, learn type design, which is basically like with calligraphy and stuff like this, how to draw letters. And from this, uh, pivoted more into the technical parts to create fonts. So the software that you're using to type in Word or in your favorite editor, 
somebody created this and uh, I did my parts here and there and uh, worked for a long time at a company where we did like the technical optimization so the fonts look good and work the way uh, how they're how they're expected. And the cool thing is like this whole ecocosmos is basically uh, driven with Python. Oh, wow. So that's why I taught myself uh, Python and uh, also stumbled over real Python. I think it was even in 2012 or something way back. <laughs> so that's makes makes me even more excited to be a uh, part of the team now. So yeah. So what, what kind of tutorials do you like to write? So mainly it's about web development. So that was always a passion uh, for me. Like I started with HTML and CSS back in the days before I learned programming. And now kind of things come together uh, with this. But I'm also interested in the design uh, part. So that's something I'm looking forward to maybe in the upcoming year to show a bit of um, what you can do with Python uh, to design things. Yeah. So it's an interesting intersection there. Yeah, cool. And then you've been working on my side with the video courses a little bit lately. You've done a couple of the Python basics courses. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about what you can uh, add to the team there um, on the design side also. Yeah, it's it's exciting. Like, especially the video courses. I've never done something like this, so it's fun fun to do them. I'm, I'm also enjoying the, the code conversation we, we're having lately, which is a bit more informal. Yeah. Yeah, so fun things going going on. <laughs> Those are really cool. Yeah, I've been uh, championing them lately um, <laughs> on the show. And then uh, I'm hoping to eventually kind of maybe move into that space myself. We'll see. I partly wanted to have you come on because you have created a, a very large series that the third part will be coming out, well, this week as, as the show comes out. And it's sort of a rewrite, but maybe you can talk a little bit about it. It's a, a sort of this series about Flask and creating uh, APIs. Yeah, so so that was an exciting one. So it's it's not entirely created by me. So it was actually a series that existed on RealPython for... I think it was created in 2018 by uh, Doug Farrell. Yeah, he's a former guest on the show also. We talked a little bit about it then. Yeah, like this series is a is like the special mix between being a fun topic in general, but also being slightly out of date. Like, I mean, four years is yeah much time in internet years. Yeah, in Python, that's uh, four versions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, so... Yeah. so yeah, so um, it was time for an update. Uh, we still have, and that's a nice thing, like still people uh, really like this tutorial, but there were more and more comments about it doesn't work anymore. So uh, yeah, we we decided to give it an update and I took it as my my three-part three series project. Formerly it was four parts, but I decided to condense it a little bit more. And uh, yeah, it shows you how to create an API with Flask. Yeah, and uses a variety of technology in there. What what are the different tools that you're you're learning throughout it? So yeah, basically like Flask is the the framework that you're that you're using, which is a web framework similar to to Django, but uh, much more, I would say, like basic in the sense that you you build stuff from the ground up. So that's the the basis of the project, and then you are using Connection. That's a framework you're using on top of Flask that uh, handles the HTTP requests okay. that you can define with uh, OpenAPI, which is a standard to define API specifications. Then you have uh, SQL Alchemy to interact with the database. So in these three parts, like, kind of walk me through some of the, the steps that you... And it's very step-by-step -step in some ways, right? The first part, what are you doing? 
Yeah, that's that's true. So so it's not like a traditional step-by-step project that we're having on Real Python now. Yeah. But it's kind of step-by-step. Uh, so yeah, it has three parts. And uh, I basically take you along creating a web app, like an API-powered web app, where you uh, can create people and attach Node to that person. Okay. So in the tutorial, it's fantasy figures like the Tooth Fairy or Knecht Hubrecht or the Easter Bunny. Uh but you could totally use this. What's that middle one? Sorry. <laughs> it's very European-centric, and I don't know it. <laughs> I, I think it's even German-centric. It's, it was okay. kind of like uh, Santa's little helper, uh, but, uh, but oh, okay. since it's German, it's like a bad one. So uh, if you weren't nice, uh, <laughs> like he gave you not only co- coal, but he like even beat you or something like that. Oh, no. So it was like... So you wanted to make sure you had good messages for him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you, you have to keep track of it. Uh, but yeah, but you can also like use this app to uh, yeah keep track of gift ideas for friends, for example. And uh, yeah, like I said, you, you use Flask as the framework and you're starting creating the Flask project. So after the, the first step, you have a boilerplate for any other Flask project that you're starting with. Okay. And then in the second part, what are you building on top of it? So, like, basically already in the, in the first part, you're uh, adding the first API endpoints. So you're creating a Swagger YAML file for the uh, API, uh, API uh, specifications. Yeah. And uh, then you're using connection to connect it uh, with your Flask app. And you have your first endpoint to uh, read all the people. Uh, so you get a list of people back. And the cool thing with uh, connection is that you can also have a so-called uh, Swagger UI documentation, which is an interactive documentation to test your endpoints. So you can play around with the API right away without doing that much of work, which is which I always like. Yeah, that's something that uh, FastAPI has and Ninja, right? Christopher used that also? That's right. Okay. Yeah, so we've talked about it a handful of times when we get into APIs. Uh, but yeah, I really like that, that interactivity instead of having to go to like a third piece of the pie, like uh, getting like a postman or something like that involved. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I, I really like to have like those small successes right away with it. And that's fun. So you can play around with the API quite soon. And the only thing is in part one, you are using a dictionary to store your data of, of people. Ah, uh, okay. Which is not ideal, but of course it's on purpose. So part two builds on it and you're using a proper database to store the data. So when you create a new person, it survives even when you restart your server. Right. Okay, good. So yeah, so basically part two is, is more about the database. And part three is then expanding your uh, database by adding the nodes. So you're adding another table uh, to it and you create a relationship between people and nodes. And uh, yeah, so then you more or less do the same again. You create API endpoints, you create models, you create functions and uh, this should give you a good basis for anything that you want to build up on. So you know about the relations between the databases or the, the database tables. And yeah, you can ride into the sunset and add any functionality yourself that you want with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And SQL Alchemy is part of it the whole way, or is that something that gets added a little more in part two and part three? It's more part two and part three. So the first part, you basically, when you know how to work with a dictionary, you can follow along. But then when you're interacting with the uh, SQLite database uh, for for this tutorial, SQL Alchemy saves you the trouble of uh, writing literal SQL for yourself. So 
yeah. comes in part two and part three then. Yeah. It sounds like, a, what was uh, what were some of the hard parts of the updates that you did? So basically, since it's more moving parts uh, compared to, to Fast API, for example, or, or the Django REST uh, framework, where you more or less have kind of like a box of things that just work, quote unquote. Yeah, they're written to, you know, be one whole thing as opposed to three parts that you're gluing together or more. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, here we have uh, multiple frameworks that, that need to interact together. And like if one is out of date or, or grabs the wrong version, uh, nothing really works. So there are slight changes here and slight changes there. And uh, that's actually how, how we ended up with the tutorial, how it looks uh, right now, because at the beginning it was more like, let's update it so everything is uh, working with the current versions. But we soon realized, well... <laughs> It's it's more than that. So we had to dig a little <laughs> bit deeper and yeah. uh, rewrote many parts of it uh, from the ground up, basically. Yeah. Were there certain parts that you enjoyed writing more? Mm, I kind of like how we how how uh, we're ending. So a bit foreshadowing. There will be a part four at some point. Oh, okay. So uh, the three parts focus on the API, but. Uh, I was uh, very excited to add uh, front end to it. Yeah, okay. At, at some point, thinking. so maybe there, there's my my design side coming. Yeah, yeah, coming yeah out I was thinking it. that. <laughs> so uh, you have a you have a super simple front end with with Jinja, which is um, coming with Flask uh, for this tutorial. So it's it looks very basic. But you can already see, like, you, you get the list of people back, but you, the, all the interaction you're doing, you're doing with this regular UI API documentation. And, uh, yeah, in the upcoming fourth uh, part, which is kind of like works as a separate tutorial, uh, then you can interact with it um, from, from the front end already. And, uh, yeah, this was exciting in that way that, like the readers, uh, well, now they know it, but uh, I knew that what I, what I want to build afterwards, so that was exciting to keep that in mind. Nice. Because the idea of just having this API and uh, you can basically create it separate from any front end is like the norm or nowadays uh, a normal way of creating a web app where you have the back end uh, with an API and then usually a very JavaScript-driven front end on the other side that just interacts with your endpoints. And so, yeah, we will tackle this at some point in the near future. Yeah, looking forward to it. Awesome. Chris, what's your first topic you wanted to get into? I'm starting with a article called 10 Tasty Ingredients for a Delicious Pull Request, and it's by a Wagtail developer who calls himself LB. Uh, Wagtail, if you haven't seen it before, is a Django-based content management system. The article really is language agnostic. It really talks about pull requests, but it comes sort of out of the Python community. Uh, has some great advice in it for anyone who's thinking about contributing to an open source project. And quite frankly, it's just good practice to adhere to even when you're managing your own commits. So there's a little bit of background. Uh, Wagtail is a pretty big project. They've got over a thousand Python files, almost 200,000 lines of code. It's 13,500 stars on GitHub and 3,000 forks. So lots of contributions, right? So, yeah. and since LB is a core contributor, he gets to see all of these commits and particularly <laughs> the new ones. So his advice is coming sort of from a uh, been there, done that kind of situation, right? 
Yeah. He starts out, uh, I guess, with the first category, uh, what I might be call obvious, but obvious in the way that most of us don't do it, which is you should read the instructions. <laughs> most larger projects have some instructions or at least a PR template that explains what the project wants to and how it wants to interact with you. And he acknowledges that some of these can be a bit painful, right? Uh, it's, uh, you know, 20 minutes now to read this and that feels like, oh, but I just want to commit code. But that 20 minutes is probably going to save you hours later because your PR got rejected or you got to cycle through and do a whole bunch of things again. So knowing upfront and read, you know, read the instructions, good advice for all of us kind of without even this context. And then he doubles down with some specifics. So, most projects include instructions on how to get them up and running. So not just instructions on how to do the PR, but how to run the project. And you really shouldn't be contributing unless you can do this step. You're not going to be able to test your contribution if you can't run the tests. Uh, I'll make a, I'd make a small exception to this that he doesn't bring in the article. Occasionally, I'll, you know, he, here's a PR with some documentation fix. Obviously, you don't need to run the tests for that. Okay. But if you're contributing code, you know, it's a good expectation from the community that you are able to test not only your code, but that you haven't broken something else. Okay. So you need to stand um, it up on your machine and sort of prove. That's really what it comes down to. And, and quite frankly, this is one of those that I... It, it can be a bit of a barrier to entry. It stopped me to, from contributing to some projects. If you know, it looks like, oh, I need, you know, I've, I've got to have this service and this service and this service and all this running. Right. Uh, you're sort of like, eh, do I want to do all that to submit this code fix? Maybe not, right? So, uh, but it's a fair thing. If you're not, uh, don't, don't submit the fix because you don't know what, what it's going to break unless you can run through that process. Makes sense. The next chunk, then he starts talking about branching and forking. I, this is one of those, I think it's just good practice. Uh, so it just sort of makes a lot of sense when you're contributing something to a community. Create a fresh branch for any change and keep your changes small and focused. Smaller separate branches make it easier to do merges and to cherry pick changes if something needs to change or get rejected. Along with that, your branch names should reflect the change as much as possible. And along the same lines, your PR itself should have a meaningful name as well. This is one of those things that if you've ever gone through your own Git history and found that thing that says fixed problem, obviously that doesn't <laughs> tell you what you did, right? <laughs> so, right. and it, yeah. you don't have to write war and peace, uh, but a little simple uh, statement can it can go a long way to understanding what's going on. And frequently with these kinds of projects, there's tickets involved. So there might be a bug ticket or a feature request or something along those lines. And uh, you should uh, include a reference to that inside of your pull request because that gives further history and background. So some kind of numbering system maybe they have set up for it. Okay. And uh, the that ticketing numbering mechanism changes from different repos, uh, but most of the major ones, GitHub, GitHub, Jira, Azure, they all have ways of including the ticket number so that it shows up as a link when you're actually looking through the trouble ticket system. And that might be automatic. And in some cases, you need like a prefix, like a number sign or something like that. So you kind of have to know the tool that you're committing to to try and get it into that format. But even if you don't know that, having a reference to the number, it makes it easier for other people who are looking through to understand how things are. Hence, going back to the, reading the documentation. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and the better, bigger projects will tell you, hey, include this number and do it this way, right? So, yeah. And another good piece of sort of general advice is write unit tests. My, my favorite approach to this, particularly with bugs, is to write the test that shows the bug exists first then fix it. I'm not a hardcore TDD guy. It's not like this is my approach to all coding. 
But particularly for bugs, this can make a big difference for things like regression suites because you want to check whether or not the bugs popped up again. So having a test that shows the bug is there before you fix it is value in and of itself. He goes into a few more bits here and there about how to deal with reviews and CI systems. uh, And and there's some great detail there, and I won't go through all of it because it's a longer article. There's like 10 different points in it. I like how it's formatted too. It's really... Yeah, and and it's relatively easy to read. He's got it all sort of grouped together, and you can sort of pick and uh, piece and skim it fairly easily, which is nice. But he ends with a great piece of advice, which is be patient. (laughs) Remember that there might only be one or two volunteers who are inundated with a flurry of PRs. And I'm sure your contribution is appreciated, but it's probably one of many. And somebody's got to go through this and deal with this. And so not to diminish the, hey, you've worked hard and you're doing that contribution. But the flip side of it is somebody's working hard to try and manage all these contributions and try to remember that as, uh, as you're going through. It might take some time time for something to show up. Yeah. Makes me think of a lot of things. Um, some of it is to do with, you know, core Python and them having a developer in residence now to like look at all these tickets and, you know, get all this stuff in there and how long, you know, these contributors who maybe submitted something when they had time on a weekend and then them kind of waiting and looking at it, you know, I feel like that type of person you're waiting for an email to be sent or something, you know? And the bigger so, the project, the more this is. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and in some cases with really active projects, you know, you, you talk about core. Well, there, 311 came out, what was it, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and 312 is already alpha, right? Yeah. So anything you're contributing, <laughs> you might be aiming for 313, which isn't going to get released until 2024, right? Like there, again, there's that patience thing that has to sort of go along with it. Yeah. Yeah, even think like this one could have been the part one of the of the tips to be like expect that you need time for it. So don't go through all the steps and then you you make the pull request and nothing happens, but um expect that. Um, to wait for days and weeks. Uh. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, I I can find as well that, like, if you're sometimes, you know, you're finding something, you're working with a library or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's broken here. Here's the three-line fix, and here you go. Uh, But other times, if you're, like, looking to get involved with the community, one of the things I would suggest is start with something smaller. See how it goes, right? Like, don't don't write 4,000 lines of code and then get it rejected and find and feel all cranky because your 4,000 lines didn't come in. Start with something small and uh, see how it goes and and once you've got a uh you know once you've got that interaction going it helps and i can tell you you know uh these projects are all run by human beings too right so if you put in two or three small requests and they're all good and they've all been accepted i bet you might slip up the list if you submit the fourth because hey i've seen your name before i know you contribute something and it's valuable right so yeah got a warm and fuzzy feeling (laughs) (laughs) yeah the, the human aspect of it kicks into all this right yeah totally can i ask you a question about wagtail I've never used it, so oh, you can okay. ask, right. but I, I, no, I, I, I won't. <laughs> I just wonder, like, what, what is the direction that it builds on top of Django? I feel like it it is more geared for blogging in general and adding lots of niceties for that sort of stuff. Like, you, you talk about going from Flask to something like Django, the Wagtail, like, goes even more directionally opinionated. <laughs> Yeah, so J- Django, you could consider Django like a, although it's, you know, it's expressed as a web framework. Right. 
it's very CMS-like, and that's because it was built for a newspaper, and the, right. the, the, the original thing was to get reporters to submit articles. So you could almost talk about it as being a content management building system, hmm. and seeing as most stuff on the web ends up just being a content management problem, that kind of makes sense. Wagtail takes it a step further and actually builds out a content management piece on top of it. So it, it's adding out of the box some of the functionality that's sort of implied by Django underneath. Okay. Yeah. So basically, if you want to have a website for a customer and you might not want uh, them to uh, use the Django admin, then Wagtail comes comes into play and you can build really nice things uh, with it um, to give it to a customer. It, it, yeah, I, I suspect it's WordPress-like. Oh, okay. and more in that direction. I, I'm, yeah. I mean that with love. Sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an insult to a Python No, you developer, don't want to accept what uh, <laughs> the 65% of the web or whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> can, right. I'm sure that number's even wrong. It's so. <laughs> Time series data runs almost every technology, but building real-time apps in legacy databases can be a nightmare to manage. At Influx Data, creator of the time series data platform InfluxDB, they built their time series platform with tools so developers don't have to make wholesale changes to their product or application just to use InfluxDB. InfluxDB is optimized for developer productivity, so developers can build IoT, analytics, and cloud applications quickly and at scale. Check it out and start for free today at influxdata.com. That's I-N-F-L-U-X-D-A-T-A dot com. Well, my story is kind of a fun one. It's <laughs> it's from my former co-host here on the Real Python podcast, David Amos. Again, he was a Real Python author for a long time. With It's sort of an interview with a previous guest, Matt Harrison, who was on uh, episode 103 uh, titled Becoming More Effective at Manipulating Data with Pandas. And we actually talked about some of the stuff that's here, but David Amos was on Twitter, and uh, hopefully it's still up as we talk. <laughs> Who knows? By next week, we'll see. He had noticed this tweet that he had put up there that was a chunk of Pandas code that had a lot of the techniques that Matt likes to use, and it suddenly created a little bit of a kerfuffle as far as like the reactions. Well, it's Twitter. And it drew... What do you expect? Oh, I know exactly. <laughs> what do you expect? I, I wrote that. You know, had he had a Twitter that drew some criticism, then in parentheses, what question mark? <laughs> <laughs> and so, David, he was he was fascinated by the reactions, but also about how Matt was handling them and sort of responding to them in kind of a con very constructive way. Again, not quite. <laughs> That's more of like a what and. He wrote this question in his post. Was there some disconnect between the folks criticizing Matt's code and the reality that has shaped Matt's lambda-laden method-chaining style of writing pandas? And so I, I just liked it as a post. It, it's it's well-written and kind of an interesting interview and it asks questions that kind of don't typically show up in, in interviews before. And so I thought it was kind of neat. Matt had has written a book called Effective Pandas, and he teaches a lot of these techniques inside of it. And I had asked him, and it was hard again on a podcast to, to I, I kept kind of pushing him in the show to say, well, you know, explain what you, what chaining kind of looks like and see if we can kind of get an example of it. And in this case, there's this really long example of taking uh, some sort of 
housing data information and sort of doing the cleaning and aggregating and renaming of columns, like all in one big statement. And that threw people off. And they're like, that's unreadable were some of the comments, the idea that all those things should be separate and separate functions. And that way it's more testable. And his response is that, you know, he teaches companies and very often these companies are not filled with programmers. They're filled with quote unquote professionals that are doing other things that are using pandas to manipulate data, to do other types of things. And these, as he likes to call them recipes, maybe sort of one-off types of things, but you can still write them in a readable way. If you look at the code, it, it's still, and you dig into it, there's an entire recipe in there with steps. And this sort of chaining technique, you can kind of see it inside of it. So I'll, I'll include links to that. I liked how he kind of explained like why he was doing it and the sort of concept of professionals doesn't necessarily mean professional developer. These are people that you know, have jobs that also want to figure out ways to make them more, you know, automated and kind of maybe move beyond Excel and everything. So that was kind of neat. And then, you know, he talks about moving them from lots of untitled dot I P Y N B and one and untitled to, you know, stuff like that. And just like, how can I get these people to be more organized and doing useful things with the code in there? He also mentioned a video, uh, idiomatic pandas that's on YouTube. That's from, uh, conf 42. Uh, that was a Python conference in 2021 that Matt Harrison did. And it's a nice video that he hadn't mentioned when he was on our show. So I thought that might actually be a kind of a nice resource for people. And one note at the very end of the interview, he mentions pollers, which is a potential sort of up and coming tool that it's written in rust and has some nice, niceties, if you will, for working with large sets of data. But one key note that I want people to realize is that, yeah, it's all about chaining also. And I think that's, it's a technique. And I definitely did a lot of that in my data science in R. And I really liked this tidyverse stuff for that, because you could do that same kind of thing with it. And there's pluses and minuses to that technique. And yeah, it might not be that readable for a complete beginner, but once you kind of see the structure of it, I really do feel like it, it truly is like a recipe that you're kind of putting together. So a nice resource here coming out of a, a, a an interview. So it, it's uh, it's also a little bit of a almost religious conversation because yeah. <laughs> this is common in other languages. JavaScript looks like this all the time. The chaining. Yep. So if you're not used to it and you're coming from languages that don't tend to use it, it's easy to sort of go the, but this isn't Python. Python's not supposed to look like this. You look like, right. you know, JavaScript or Haskell or something else. And uh, so I, I think it gets people, uh, there, you, you end up with a, a sharper response to it than you would think would be, you know, why, why, why do you care? <laughs> um, and, and it's because <laughs> yeah. it, it ruffles feathers because it, it looks like uh, a different language. Right. This is supposed to be Python, and it's supposed yes. to look the way that yeah. I write Python. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's a there's a uh, defensive personality aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this this makes this uh, interview even interesting if you're not caring about pandas too much. I think it's a very interesting interview about 
a person talking about uh, why they program in a certain way and what's their thinking behind it. So I think you can read it even if you're never worked with pandas. Yeah. And he also, he has kind of a unique audience that he teaches, right? He teaches seminars to, you know, large companies that are, you know, sort of adding Python and wanting to be familiar with sort of data wrangling and stuff like that, which is kind of his specialty. So we had one other article we wanted to kind of cover. And then, uh, Philip, did you want to start it off the, the PyPI one? Uh, yeah, sure. It has the, the catchy title, More Suspicious PyPI Packages which sounds a bit like there is a pandemic going on on PyPI, which I don't think that's the case. But you mentioned uh, when we were talking uh, the other day that you tackled uh, this topic uh, here and there in the podcast as well, that now and then there are packages on PyPI that are, well, not good packages. and uh, <laughs> Malicious, potentially, yes. <laughs> malicious uh, packages. And yeah, so th this is a blog post uh, from Phylum. Uh, that's a company that focuses on like the security of the supply chain of your projects by inspecting the open source uh, packages that you're using. And yeah, they found out that there are some infectious packages that uh, are on PyPI. And the interesting thing with this blog post is that they found some like sneaky ways how, how those uh, packages <laughs> yeah. were uh, kind of like put to PyPI. So yeah, the first thing is that those packages kind of use uh, this thing called typo squatting, which means that you change one character in a package's name and hope that people will do a typo and download your package. Right. They they do like a plural version of something. Exactly. So I don't know, maybe you, you have experienced this when you type a URL or something and you're ending up on, on some weird site and you realize you just like forgot a letter or something like, like this. Same goes for, for the packages. And I think that's not so new. What's interesting is that uh, some of those packages copy basically the content from the package that they are copying. So when you're looking at PyPI, so you're looking for something, it looks like the real thing. And you have to, to be really careful and in looking into the source code even to find out that this is not the real thing, the, the real package. And the way how they introduced this malicious code, and I think that was the other thing that was uh, very interesting about it, it, it's even a bit comedic, I, I think, like, they added some malicious code around 300 spaces to the right in the uh, <laughs> yeah. setup.py file, which means if you're just looking at the file and you don't have the word wrap um, in your editor, you wouldn't see it. And uh, so you have to scroll. Yeah, good reason for having it on, right? <laughs> Probably that's, that's the takeaway from it. Uh, put on the word wrap <laughs> in your editor. My takeaway from this is continuing to use Vim is the answer to all problems. So it always it, wraps. It, yes, it would just it would, and in and in my setup, it would get a big red mark on it for going past the 80, uh, 80 column points. So bad code, old <laughs> old school for the win. Yes, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, three hundred eighteen spaces is way beyond the what seventy or eighty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought the other interesting thing that that you were mentioning there is the the idea that the since it's a copy of almost all the other stuff, the documentation looks the same, 
right when you go to the PyPI, it'll have that whole page that kind of builds out automatically. Yeah. And it, it totally has that same kind of landing page feel like, oh, this feels authentic. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. yeah. There are other things you want to mention about it? Uh, I think that's that's it from my side. Okay. Cool. Yes. And then they have a list of some of the the packages to kind of keep an eye on. But but yeah, another technique that's out there along with the typo squatting. Now we gotta worry about them doing some uh, they did some obfuscation. I can't say that word very well. They hid the code in another way too, right? By encoding it. Um, exactly. And in the end, I think like when this uh, company tried to execute the code, it didn't even work. But uh yeah. Yeah. Bad, bad code. Yeah, exactly. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It's about a topic we touch on this week, working with Pandas data frames. The course is based on a real Python tutorial by Mirko Stojilovic. And in the course, Cesar Aguilar takes you through what a Pandas data frame is and how to create one, how to import a CSV file directly into a data frame, how to access, modify, add, sort, filter, and delete data, how to handle missing values, and work with time series data, including slicing data frames using date-time indices, and how to quickly visualize data. Knowing how to work with Pandas data frames is a good investment of your time and an important starting point for anyone interested in data science. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com. I think that leads us into a discussion this week. And Chris, do you want to start that one? Sure. So this comes off a posting on Google Groups. And it started out with a uh, poster named Antun Pardon, who has asked the question, I would like a tool that tries to find as many syntax errors as possible in a Python file. And I know there's a risk of false positives, but how do I get like a thousand rather than one at a time? Just to sort of give a little background here, depending on you know your your programming language, Python because it's interpreted often as soon as it hits something, it stops and and doesn't keep going. Uh, and so if you've got a bunch of problems in your file, you're going to be doing run it, fix a problem, run it, fix a problem, run it, fix a problem. By contrast, and this will completely date me. My first C compiler was in high school. There were 15 of us all operating on the same shared Unix system, which was a screaming fast four megahertz processor. Whoa, slow down. And uh, <laughs> if we were all compiling at the same time, it could take like 25 or 30 minutes. So you would output all of the errors into a file, and then you would go and try to fix all of the errors that you could at the same time, because the next time you ran compile, it was going to take another 20 minutes. So that style of non-interpreted languages tends to keep parsing the language and uh, showing you multiple errors. So I suspect Antun might be coming from a different programming language, and when he hit Python, yeah. he may have gone, wait, hold on, why can't I, why am I, why am I only seeing one mistake at a time? Yeah, so I was wondering about that. And I guess my experience is using an IDE. And so I yeah. feel like a lot of the stuff that, you know, I'm, <laughs> I was researching, you know, what are best practices. And so they're like, install this, install this, install this. And so I go, you know, it 
had linting and had all these other kinds of things kind of ready to go. So as I'm typing, and maybe that's the difference here, maybe this was like, you know, already an existing file that he was looking through for syntax errors. But I'm used to the idea that as I'm creating it, it's like kind of giving me feedback. Uh, and so I'm wondering if that that's part of the process. I'm having that disconnect. Yeah, know? well, even if it's a existing file or something somebody's given you in your IDE, you're going to get, depending on your IDE, the little squiggly red lines underneath right. those parts that are going to be problematic. Uh, he may not be using one, uh, I suspect. Yeah. Um, and, and you never, you know, without having the context of a post, you never know where this person's coming from, right? Like this could be, right. you know, it's one of the things I kind of love about the internet. There's people who have responded to this question that are Fortran programmers saying, how do you do this in Python? If in Fortran, I would do yeah, it yeah. this way. So like, y- right. you never know where... <laughs> you kind of wonder where these people come from sometimes. You're like, yeah, out of the woodwork. They're like, up exactly. here. You're like, oh, interesting. I, I'm, 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 I don't think they're trolling, but I'm never sure. Right. Um, so it's possible that this just that this person is either new to the language or uh, isn't using these kinds of tools, right? And uh, if you've come from other languages, you might not be used to the fact that they're out there. Or and sometimes what also happens is people in different parts of the world have different things like internet capabilities, right? right so right. you know, uh, you, you you might be starting out because it came with the operating system on a CD that you installed, and you know you're not. Uh, you're not connecting live and downloading the latest copy of VS Code because that might take you a month, right? So, right. so you never know where some of these kinds of come, things come down to. Yeah, I did find it interesting that you know, like you sort of scroll through it, and and it's it's a longer conversation than I expected. I just, we've never done anything with this kind of. Uh, we, we've talked, I don't know, Stack Overflow, and we've used a few other different resources, Reddit. Hacker News. So this is the first time I think we've done Google Groups. Yeah, and it's a little more tangential than some of our other conversations. And I don't know whether, the, you know, we've got a data point of one, right? So I don't know whether this yeah. is a, an aspect of the community or whether it's just this one caused an awful lot of tangent. And I found the tangents fascinating, right? Like there, there were some people yeah. doing deep dives into teaching others how AST trees work in Python. Right. And and we're <laughs> like we're we're basically explaining how you would build a linter. And I found it fascinating because they didn't start with, oh, and by the way, there's a bunch of these out there, so you don't have to build it by scratch. Like it was sort of this like, uh, you know what, you could uh you you could build yeah, use AST and yeah, start building you, stuff. You could yeah. chisel <laughs> the bits by hand into the hard drive. Uh, yeah, you could, <laughs> but why would you was kind of where I was going from there, right? And yeah. Uh, and then you get the helpful because it's the internet. Like, just how many errors are you putting in your code? Right? It's like, <laughs> it's like yeah, great. That that helps the guy, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I think you're a moron. Not only because you're asking the question, but obviously you're a bad programmer and you're smelly oh, too. Yeah. Like, That's you know, nice, it, yeah. it just it's <laughs> welcome to the internet, right? So, yeah. There was one piece of advice that I thought was interesting of running running your script to sort of check the syntax and it was using this pi underscore compile um, which would create all the PYC files is that right In, instead of just purely running the script I've never used it I, Philip is it something you're familiar with I, I haven't no, played with that sorry no yeah yeah as in yeah I, I like the you could use pie checker pie flakes pilot there's all these like other suggestions uh, that I'm like yeah those are the kinds of things that I would move into so yeah it's an interesting like you know, kind of community question. And then, like you said, there's a, a really interesting subset of answers that 
that we're kind of dancing around this idea that there's for you know especially with just the term of like syntax error like like you've named something incorrectly or you've called you know like you've had a spelling error that's what i think of like like some simplistic syntax errors but the, but obviously there's other ones that that can be in there so i guess i'm maybe i'm relying too much on my my uh, tools and well in fact that's one of the other tangents that's in there was someone uh, so the phrase syntax error generically usually means like he, I, the way he's using it i think he actually means a compile error right some something uh, that should be caught by the compiler and there was one person who was responding back with the lesson of what an actual syntax error is in Python, right? Right. So, you know, forgetting an import isn't technically a syntax error, but it's the kind of yeah. thing that is caught by the compiler and would be the kind of error that you'd want to have caught, right? And, you know, Py, PyCharm underlines that in red. Uh, linters say, I don't know what this is. You need to import right. it, right? So, <laughs> and, and so I, don't, I don't recognize this thing. And, yeah. and, and so, you, yeah. but, you know, you're sort of back to who's asking the question in the context and and yeah. he's accidentally asked it in a way that somebody can take literally which causes its own little thread and some confusion but you know you, you were you're talking earlier about the you know the py compile actually creating the pycs as far as I know, all the linters I've used, and I suspect I can even paint with a broader brush than that, they use the AST so that they aren't actually running the compiler. Yeah. And this is done intentionally because running the program might have side effects. So you don't want to run the program in some of these situations because you might be doing something like connecting to a database when you load the uh, uh, when you do the import, right? It's okay. not best practice, but people do it all the time. So there's side effects of loading the modules. So you want the linter not to actually load your code and if it's and if you start if you're using you know, profiling tools, you have to run it. But if you're doing something like I'm looking for syntax errors, or, you know, in my case, I use the linters all the time, because I, I, you know, I, you copy and paste some code, and you're like, how many imports do I have here? Do I need them all? And then the linter goes, oh, this, you're not using this one, right? So there's some cleanup right. stuff that you can use there as well. Yeah. A and it's an important aspect of them that they do not load the actual modules, because you don't want those side, side effects firing. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of like the same reason you would do that testing wise in a different way yes yeah okay yeah it's an interesting conversation you know just it seems like a you know kind of a different group of people kind of going back and forth and then again there's a handful of people kind of coming in and going well this <laughs> this sounds really foreign to me this this process that you're using to do it like they're like somebody asked you know so like how does one declare a variable in python i was like oh yeah. boy yeah yeah um <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh you know really different sorry you just write the name and then put what it is <laughs> it's not that far from fortran but i well and i understand where his comment was coming from because you know in the older days trying to i used to have to do this with javascript all the time you'd get some uh, a syntax error something's not running it won't load and it's saying, hey, this is happening on line five. And you're like, there isn't even code on line five. Like, what, <laughs> what, yeah. what is happening, right? And one of the techniques for dealing with that is like, you comment out three quarters of the file and then you run it. And you're like, oh, that compiles, fine. Yeah. Okay, so now I'll comment out, uh, you know, two thirds of the file. You just sort of shrink it a little bit at a time until you get a reasonable answer and you go, oh, crap, I missed that comma. And I think our Fortran programmer was trying to give advice down that as to, you know, how to change your variables or whatever so that it becomes clearer which one's happening. 
Yeah, you know, and, and shout out to Python three eleven and all the changes their core developers yes, have been doing about error that. correction because yes. and telling you where it is and being way more specific. Beautiful, right? Yeah, that's good stuff. I just ran into this recently with I was putting together the course on uh, context managers, and one of the things in the article that the course is based on is, hey, this syntax error means this, and it's horrible, and it's hard to understand. And I'm running Python three eleven, and I'm like, actually, that tells me exactly what happened. That's beautiful. <laughs> so uh, yay, yay, improved error messages. Yeah, yay three eleven, nice. Well, good. I, it's interesting. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to see what other kind of conversations we can can find through. Uh, these new uh, communities kind of look at what's going on out there. So I think that moves us into projects. Did you want to go first, Philip? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so my first project is a little Python script. That's That might be interesting for the Mac users uh, listening. It's called Video CR, created by Peter Cooper. And yeah, since I think it's macOS Monterey, which is like one of the latest Mac versions, uh, you can select text and photos or videos. So if you like see a picture in, in a video, uh, like a sign in a video, you can press pause and you can actually select the text, which is, uh, for me, uh, when I first did it, it was mind-blowing that this is possible, <laughs> which yeah. is a cool feature. And this little script uh, is a proof of concept that you can actually hook into this OCR technology macOS contains with Python. So like this, this little project uh, is basically one Python file with uh, some requirements. You also need uh, FFmpeg, which I'm maybe, you Chris, you need. know more about. Uh, <laughs> you always need. <laughs> yeah, it's the compression-decompression like tool of choice, on, especially on Mac, but I think it's on everything. It's a very popular tool for uh, compression and decompression. So yeah, if, if you download this and you have a Mac, it's a new, newer uh, macOS ver version, and you can try out this script and extract uh, text from video files. And the cool thing about it, which I think uh, is nice that this proof of concept exists. So imagine you're creating videos for the web and you want to make sure that, uh, I don't know, some credentials uh, that you're typing somewhere are not leaking. So I don't know, some AWS um, keys or something like that. So you can create a Python script to check every uh, video file that you want to put out there that uh, your password or whatever is not showing in those uh, video files. Huh. Yeah. I can think of another one where uh, someone who's blind and is trying to learn more of the language and there's this whole other subset of resources, which are videos, if the person isn't really speaking out all the code that they're typing and creating on the screen, it could potentially uh, give that as a as a way of doing it. Something that would not be in the closed, ca closed captions. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, what's your uh, project, Chris? So you may recall we were talking recently uh, back to you know Python three eleven. I didn't do that on purpose, but look at that almost segue. Yeah. The uh, latest release added a optimization called uh, Specializing Adaptive Interpreter. Yeah. And how this works is uh, when you run a Python script, uh, CPython first compiles it into bytecode, and the bytecode's the code that actually gets run by the interpreter. And what the new feature of the Specializing Adaptive Interpreter was is to add some new bytecode operations that, rather than being a straight operation, mark for possible future replacement in certain kinds of speed cases. And the idea is, say you're multiplying two numbers together inside of a for loop, 
the interpreter can say, oh, well, that's a multiplication. I'm going to mark this. And then as it notices that you're doing this a lot, it goes, oh, wait, those are both floats. And so, and because you're doing it a lot, I'm going to replace the general multiply with a float-specific multiply, which tends to be faster. And it only does this if the code's running several times. So it tends to happen inside of for loops, that kind of thing. So that's the background. And this project is by a gentleman named Brent Butcher, and it's called Specialist. It's a very specific kind of profiler. You use the tool to run your code, and it outputs a highlighted version of it indicating those specializations that are in the bytecode. So if you go back to my floats example, if you run the script through this tool, you'd see the multiplication actually get highlighted. So the highlights indicate uh, what code has been marked for being adaptive, uh, but never actually adapted. Uh, so like it didn't run enough to get changed, as well as things that did get adapted. And uh, if I read it correctly, I think it even does like more color for if it's happening more. But I, I was it was unclear to me, and and the sample code I played with didn't do enough of it to cause that to happen. So hmm. I I may be misunderstanding the documentation there. But the output is essentially in HTML and the tool after it runs your code opens up a browser and shows you an annotated version of your code. So there's kind of two uses for this tool. The first is you just want to learn more about how the adaptive interpreter works. So you can see what it would do to your code and you know get an idea of how these things fit together. Uh, and then the second is if you're running Python 3.11 code, you can actually use this to figure out how to do speed up. So this is back to that profiling thing I was saying earlier. So by seeing what got annotated and what got annotated and didn't run and what got specialized, you may be able to refactor your code so that you can take advantage Advantage of the adaptive interpreter. Uh, the example that Brant uses in the documentation is that currently division doesn't get optimized. I say currently because they, they're going to be adding more operations in future versions of Python. Don't know whether that's on the list or not. But by changing, say, when the division is done or getting some of the division to, you know, the order of the division, so it's happening from the compiler, if you can, or changing it to a different operation, like, say, bit shifts, you might be able to get some speed up because you, not only would you uh, get, you know, faster code for refactoring it, but you're now going to be able to take care of this sort of adaptive concept. So it's an interesting little tool. Of course, Python 3.11 is still pretty new, so I'm not sure I'm adding this to my toolbox quite yet. Yeah. Uh, but it does uh, provide some good insight. And if you're interested in the, you know, the internals of how this works and what it might be able to do for your code in the future, it's uh, it's a it's a, a, a fascinating little experiment. Yeah, Brent, I think is maybe key in actually introducing it to the language. He's a core developer. Ah, okay. I didn't recognize the name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's um I think he may be even on the team the fast yeah, the Microsoft team. Ah, okay. And um, so that that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, and then I I'm wondering if there's like he used it as a tool to kind of learn a little more about it and and go from there, but yeah. Cool. Yeah, he's I, I would like to get him on the show to talk uh, more about this stuff. That would be really cool. Awesome. So, um my project is a a project that's been around for a little while. In fact, we actually have a couple articles about it and in places that we've used it but it's a command line interface builder tool called typer uh it's from Seb sebastian ramirez he is most known for probably fast api he built this on top of click which is a very popular i would argue 
decorator-centric CLI. And I think there's lots of nice tutorials and stuff out of there. But it's it's uh, the subtitle is Typer, Build Great CLIs, Easy to Code, Based on Python Type Hints. He's a big fan of Type Hints and taking advantage of them. And the article that, that we had on Real Python was from about this time last year, Leodonis Ramos wrote a step-by-step project called Build a Command Line to Do App with Python and Typer. I think that was based around version 0.4. It's already up to version 0.7. But around July of this year, he added a lot of connections to Rich from you know Will McGugan and his whole prettifying uh, CLI terminal output kind of stuff. And so he added progress bars and boxes and lots of other stuff that might make your CLI prettier and, and again, built in. And so in order to take advantage of some of these features, he added a new way to pip install it where you, I don't know if you've seen that before, where you add like square brackets and maybe like another word. In this case, it's like typer square brackets all. (laughs) And it adds like these four different libraries to kind of get you all the bonus features. I really like his tutorial and user guide for it. I think it's very instructive and gives lots of kind of nice examples and lots of visual output that's sort of animated and so forth of what it will actually pop up and look like inside of there. And has lots of nice starting points for you to kind of, if you're interested in getting into CLI design, Typer just seems to be keeping on going as far as growing and improving. And uh, I think it's a cool project to check out if you're interested in that side of Python playing from the CLI side. All right. Well, Philip, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun to talk with you and uh, hope to have you on the show sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Christopher, thanks again. Always fun. All right. And don't forget, InfluxDB time series platform is available in the cloud, on-premises or locally. Get started for free today at influxdata.com. I want to thank Philip and Christopher for joining me this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and look forward to talking to you soon.